All right. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. I am your host, Claire Watkins. International break, international break week. So we're going to do a little bit of a little bit of a hodgepodge. We're going to talk about some of the games that were played this week. We're going to do a little bit of a mailbag in section two. Just got kind of some stuff to talk about. Hopefully nothing too intense this week, which is actually kind of a nice break. Uh, joined once again by Party Kadri, Equalizer contributor. How's it going, Party? I'm doing okay. You have you have you enjoyed a little bit of a lighter game schedule this week? Yeah, yeah, it was nice. I got to go outside. That was cool. <laughs> right, exactly. There are whole days in the weekend where you know you don't have to be watching games. A lot of the European games were played on Friday, so Saturday and Sunday, pretty pretty free, which is actually kind of kind of refreshing, I would say. Um, so we are going to talk about some of the games that did occur. Obviously, the U.S. We'll start with the U.S. here. Um, they played their first of two games against Paraguay on Thursday. And I'm just going to give a quick list of the goal scorers. I'm sure everybody is aware. If you're not, they won nine to nothing. Just not a few a very, goals. Yeah, just, you know, it was not a very close game, kind of like we anticipated. We sort of prepped for that last week. Um, so just to, just to let everybody know what exactly happened, the U.S. scored six goals in the first half, three in the second. Carly Lloyd had a hat trick. She scored first in the third minute. And then in the sixth minute, Andy Sullivan scored in the 25th. Lynn Williams in the 30th. Carly Lloyd again in the 34th. Oh, she had four goals uh, again five, in the 38th. Actually. Wait, no, five. What five. am I talking about? Jeez, I'm like reading this list and I'm like, right, of course. I guess I blocked the final three out. Um, Andy Sullivan again. Andy Sullivan had a brace. Carly Lloyd scores her fifth in the 61st. And then Tobin Heath gets one in the 86th. So there is not a lot to talk about competitively in this match. And everything else that we're going to talk about, we should probably caveat with the significance of it still to be determined. However, lovely to see Mallory Pugh and Andy Sullivan walk in and do so well, right? Absolutely. That was the one thing I was just hoping for out of these matches, as much rotation as possible. Obviously, it's mostly still um, the folks at the, that went to the Olympics. But they did wonderful work. It was nice to see Andy Sullivan back in the team. I mean, especially considering Mewis isn't going to play. Uh, Vlad Granovsky said that Haran will not be fit for these two matches. Mm-hmm. Great. To ha- She's always been such a valuable player on this team. Nice to see her come in, get those goals. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in a way it goes to show a little bit too. The, the goal scorers in this one were the players that I, you would have to imagine had the most to, to prove in a way, right? Because Carly Lloyd is about to retire. For her, these are the final professional goals she's ever going to score. So I imagine, you know, it's not hard for Carly Lloyd to come up with a, a reason to be really engaged. Yeah. But for knowing that there's a finite, there's only three games left in her international career, I'm sure that that's a driver. And then, yeah, I'm sure both Andy Sullivan and Mallory Pugh were very excited to go out there and not really prove themselves because they wouldn't have been invited if they hadn't already proved themselves. And I also believe, I do think that the mentality specifically from Vladko down is if you're part of this bubble, if you come into camps and are part of this group, you are a respected player in this system. You do not need to prove yourself in a friendly. And we've actually seen that these friendlies, we've seen players, I go back to Midge Purse scoring in one of the U.S.'s last friendlies before the Olympic roster was decided. These are not weighted very heavily, I don't think. I think most of these rosters come together in training. And so that's the most um, significant part. But again, better to do well on, on the big stage 
I think. Right. It's sort of consolidating the good work you've already done. Right. Which I think is a really nice way to come uh, to put these squads together. But yeah, you definitely want to get some minutes in a game. Look, against Paraguay, it's all about getting players just minutes and time to show whatever they can do because the stakes are just remarkably low. So if you can get on the pitch, that's great. If you can do well, also great. I don't think anyone had a bad game. Especially, it was great for the two players that got the start that weren't part of the Olympic roster. Yeah, agreed. Thought Lynn Williams played quite well. Um, was stoked to see Tierna Davidson get that beautiful assist on that long ball at the very end. I thought that was really nice. She can, she's the kind of player who can do that and should work on developing that. Um, yeah. So I'll find, you know, maybe final question about the game and it's not so much about the game itself, but it seemed like the res- people don't really know what to do with these games a little bit where you have the U S fans who are, soccer heads and like to analyze a lot of the U S performances and analyze like who's doing well and what system are they running and how is it working and all of that sort of stuff. And what does it mean for the future? You're not really going to get that from these games. Um, I think there are people who just want to watch the U S score bangers. So this is maybe the perfect game for them, but it's always interesting to see a, a fan base. that's like kind of always a little bit uh, hyper engaged looking towards what the next thing is. And of course the next thing is 2023 to be faced with these four games, which by my estimation are the sole focus is just to have the team play in front of fans in the Midwest. Like that is what this is for. They get their, they get their post tournament bonuses. They get to come play these games. Everybody cheers the U S I'm sure would like to have scheduled someone they know a little bit better, but obviously the pandemic is still raging in many parts of the, of the world, including here. And, and then on top of that, some countries are just not available. Right. Exactly. Well, yeah, because you've got qualifying for other, in other regions. So I don't know. I think that this was nice. I think it's nice that fans are going to get to go see them. Um, it's a, but it's a little bit like the U S women's national team on tour, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you understand why it exists and it's not, you know, you're not sitting there thinking it's a horrible situation by any means. The worst part of it is that sometimes the opponents, the U S lineup, and again, not always the far, uh, the fault of the people organizing these things are teams that aren't actually prepared to play competitive matches. That was the case for Paraguay, which was very unfortunate. I don't, I mean, we can always say, you know, this is a learning experience for the team that's coming and playing the U S for the first time again in front of a crowd like this, whatever, but you can't really take as much away if you're not properly prepared. And that is completely outside of the U S's control. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you, yeah. Um, so that's the worst part of a match like this, but you know, all I was saying is just weighing a lot of the stuff. It's you get why they do these games. So these exhibitions, this tour, because they're, they are singular in that this, there's not, there are not a lot of teams. Maybe there aren't any teams in this country that can go around and do that, that have captivated the national attention in such a way where, you can take them to places and you can just it, it'll be a beneficial experience, obviously, for U.S. soccer financially. Right. But it'll be a great experience for people who have not 
seen this team play in person a little while or maybe ever. And to give that sort of experience to people, again, it's just, it's a very unique thing that I don't know if a lot of other teams in this country can do. Right. Yeah, no, it it is fascinating because I think when you see sport as commerce kind of so plainly, there is a little bit of a knee jerk reaction of like, oh, this isn't what it should be. You know, it should always be something competitive and, and something that makes sense in the grand terms of the sport itself. Um, but we've come a long way from a 10 game victory tour. We're not doing that anymore. Yeah. All of these games are being played during international breaks. People are not being pulled from their club teams early. Nothing like that. Uh, and this is kind of the facilitator of what makes this team so popular is you people love watching these these things. Oh gosh, I can't talk today. People, <laughs> people <laughs> bad for a podcast. Uh, people love watching this team on TV. They love following these players on social media. You get fans for life going into a, a stadium and and seeing them play live. And I think that that is part of what the team is cultivating. And so that is a mutually beneficial relationship between even the players and the federation, despite the fact that those two are not really seeing eye to eye right now. So and that's um, something that people who are fans of others teams have asked for. Right. You know, people ask that from the USMNT and obviously they're a group that only play in certain places during certain times of the year. They're in a world cup qualifying cycle now, and they're only going to play in a handful of places. And it's very predictable. And everybody knows it. Like, for example, I live in New York. They're not coming here. (laughs) (laughs) Even without the drama of the last cycle, that, that was a really special scenario. And it was shocking that they were coming here in the first place. And we can get into that a different, that's a different podcast, I think. But, um, there's that. I know people who are fans of the England men's national team for years complained that they only played at Wembley, even though that's not even, I mean, compared to our country, it's a, not even that hard to get from one place to another necessarily. But even then, you know, it is still hard in its own right. So you get why they do it. Really, the, the my main gripe is that I would always prefer a competitive match. It's not always the easiest thing to arrange. And the gripe is not at the end of the day, even with us soccer. Right. I will say that, uh, I definitely no longer really buy into sort of the facade that, right. Like you said, like this is some great building experience necessarily for the team that comes into play. Um, I hope that I would hope that when you're negotiating something like this, between federations, there are some assurances being made for support for the players themselves. Um, I'm sure the Paraguayan Federation got paid quite a lot for these matches. I do hope that those players get to see that or that that money is used for further investment into the women's team. A lot of times that's not guaranteed. So we'll see for Paraguay. um, I do actually think the second game might be a little bit easier I think there's this idea that uh, teams might get run down by the second match. And I think that that's true, especially when you have a team that hasn't played together in a very long time. Two full 90s pretty close together is tough. However, we've seen in recent years, actually, in these two game residencies that the away team or the visiting team tends to do a little bit better, even just in terms of matching physicality getting stuck in a little bit more. You see maybe the spaces that you allowed the other players because you were maybe a little bit intimidated or just getting used to the speed of play. Those kinds of things, just through sort of effort and a little bit of coaching, you can improve quickly. You're not necessarily going to get a ton more shots on goal, but defensively, you can take steps forward. You can get into scrums a little bit more. 
and basically just disrupt what the U.S. is trying to do. And that is the difference between a three and or four goal game and a nine goal game. And I think that that might be what we see in the second match. Yeah. Yeah. We've seen that a lot. So I would expect the same. There are plenty of things you can take away in a short amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. So the U.S. will close this out on Tuesday in Cincinnati, and then they will be back with, well, the NWSL players will be back with their NWSL clubs. Uh, Katarina Macario will be back off to Lyon. Uh, Tobin Heath will be off to Arsenal. I'm not sure actually we've covered that here yet. Um, We'll probably talk about that more once she gets over there, but um, that's an exciting signing. She's going to be playing in the WSL this year. And yeah, I don't know. It's just, this is sort of the final hurrah, right? And we, this is maybe one final thing to talk about with the U S is, you know, it was been interesting to see some of the stuff that Carly Lloyd said after the match about sort of taking things in. And we mentioned that talking about getting all of those goals. Um, we also saw Andy Sullivan say some interesting stuff too. Why don't you talk about that party? Yeah. Um, actually I can read the quotes. I have them in front of me. If you want to start, we can start with the Carly Lloyd stuff because that to me felt more profound than anything I've actually ever heard out of her. She, um, she said that she's no longer ice cold Carly. Uh, she said, I think that I'm channeling these emotions a lot different Things are hitting me a little bit differently. It's a bit draining. I feel very tired. And like I said, I think that's the most reflective I've ever heard her. I For a long time, I mean, for years, I remember I did an interview with her a couple of years ago and she was like, if I don't retire after these upcoming Olympics, my husband's going to kill me. She was joking, of course. So, I mean, she's always, I think everybody's known that retirement was coming for her. She's known it herself, but I have to imagine it's just so different when you finally make the decision and when it becomes public and you know that everything is numbered, the games are numbered, the minutes are numbered, the goals are numbered, the amount of screaming fans adoring uh, the work you do is numbered. I don't think we've ever heard Carly Lloyd, who's, who's, I guess her defining aspect is that she's always willing to admit that she's grinding. She's always grinding. She's never stopping. What isn't the name of her book? Something like when nobody's watching. Right. Yeah. But for her to say that she's tired and I don't even mean that it's not a criticism is just different. I find it refreshing. I think it's just, it's just one example of what retirement must feel like. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think also you have a player like that who, like you said, one of her defining characteristics as a player was her very unique focus. And so, um, yeah, it's interesting to have her be reflective and I'm sure it'll be interesting to catch back up with her a year into retirement, five years into retirement. I don't know. I don't know what Carly Lloyd's second act is, and I'm sure that it's going to take her a little bit to figure that out too. Um, and then, yeah, Andy Sullivan kind of had, she, she joked a little bit about the environment change coming from the spirit. And this is significant actually for, for people who have been following the Washington spirit saga. Um, They, they have not really made players available to media. They've been been available in post games, but they have not done (laughs) pregame press conferences. They also haven't done post game in two in what this is like three. Right. In two weeks because they've had two forfeited matches. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you can't uh, do post-match if there is no match. 
Right. Yes. Right. So after, after the spirit did get uh, hit with a three, nothing forfeit to the Portland thorns that was done retroactively after the OL rain forfeit. Um, and they were also, the team was fined $25,000. We'll talk about this a little bit more in one of the mailbag questions in the second half, but um, yeah, Andy Sullivan said it's been, she, you know, she didn't get into too much detail about it, but she said it's been rough a little bit. Yeah, she said, quote, it's rare that I would say that this environment is less stressful than our club environment, but that's the case for me right now. So I'm just super excited to get into camp. Yeah. Which I am, I have to say, I'm usually surprised when players are as clear as that. I mean, she said it with a joking tone, but even then, that's right. I mean, I guess she doesn't want to beat around the bush. I don't blame her for it. I can't imagine it's great being there right now. Yeah. I mean, and also specifically for someone like Andy Sullivan, um, we know that she's vaccinated, actually. She publicized that uh, this spring. So we know that she is not one of the players who broke any sort of protocol. And I can only imagine what it was, what it's been like being a member of a team um, where you feel like you're giving everything that you possibly can and you're not getting that back. Uh, so maybe moving in, into an environment where you feel a little bit like everybody there is on the same page um, makes makes sense. So I think that we'll see not a glowing, not a glowing <laughs> thing for her to say about the spirit. But um, yeah, I am fascinated and we'll talk about this next week once we have games. But I'm fascinated to see what the spirit look like in their next match because they have not played in a very long time. I think it'll be about a month off by the time they do end up playing their next game. I don't know how you work through this, but I guess the way Andy Sullivan is working through it is going to the U.S. camp and playing really well. So not a bad way to do it. Kudos to her. All right. So we do have some other games or some other games this week. Um, more kind of lopsided results. Uh, UEFA World Cup qualifying. Some pretty lopsided stuff. Nine zero, ten zero score lines. Um, we had some debuts. We saw Mark Parsons coaching the Netherlands for the first time. And this game was actually kind of close. Well, not kind of close. It was very close. The Czech Republic drew the Netherlands one to one. And it was the Netherlands actually who had to come back and get the equalizer late in this match. It looked like possibly they were going to struggle to get that result. Now, if they had lost this game, not a a deal breaker in any way, they are just beginning their World Cup qualifying journey. Um, But maybe what we journey with a new coach with a new coach. And I think maybe what we saw here was, it's simply not easy to transition from one coach to the next, especially when that coach is doing a little bit of double duty right now. And on top of that, the last coach you had was there for a while and built the foundation of the team as it is. Right. It's just a new thing completely now. Yeah. And I mean, this is maybe again, to, to put maybe a kinder eye on Vodka Andonofsky, when you inherit an established roster that has been put together by somebody else, you have to make decisions about when or if you want to blow that up with your own ideas. And for a country like the Netherlands, I'm going to be honest, I I don't know exactly how deep their player pool is. Maybe some of those roster decisions are a little bit more obvious. Maybe the starting 11 decisions, slightly less so. Um, But for now, I think probably he, like I said, he has not necessarily had a chance to fully integrate himself into the program he picked a group that uh, Serena Vegman had been using prior and it went fine, but we'll see probably more from Mark Parsons in the future 
when he has a little bit more time to sort of decide how he wants to shape this group. Right. And he um, doesn't he doesn't have as many friendlies to tinker around with. He was right. just, but I again it's just it's just the beginning of a period. One game is not really a reflection or an indictment on anyone or anything right now, I think. No, I just think these transitions are hard. I just really do. Um we did see we did see Serena Vegman's her debut with England, which they won handily. Big scoreline against North Macedonia, which everyone kind of expected, eight to nothing. They got a bit of a slow start though, which I thought was interesting. So this game was nil nil or one to nothing, I think, for at least a half hour, and that was mostly due to some some kind of poor finishing by England. But again. I just think that getting back these teams, whether they were in the Olympics or not, obviously we're talking actually about two teams that were pretty disappointed in their Olympic campaigns and getting back into the swing of, of world cup qualifying. It maybe just takes a second. So, I mean, for sure, these players, I don't think have had a lot of rest in between the Olympics and right. going back to their clubs and now coming here. So yeah, with new, with now with new management. Yeah. It's just, I think that it makes sense to me why there are, there are some shades to this, but I'm trying to think of, I'm looking at other close games here. Um, Oh yeah. Slovakia played quite well against Sweden. They held Sweden just to one goal. Sweden did win that one to nothing. Uh, Sweden also actually kind of came out looking a little bit flat. So maybe this is a theme a little bit with some of these teams that, that went, went a little bit deeper in the Olympics. Um, Scotland got a big result against Hungary two to nothing. Uh, There was another tie. Ah, yes. Poland drew Belgium. I think that one was interesting, but we'll see. We'll, we'll see some of these, uh, group stage games get a little bit more intriguing as time passes with a lot of these, as I understand it, it's not so much about who's going to win the group. The real intrigue comes with who's going to get second. And that is where you can see some cool stuff. Some cool stuff happen with some smaller nations and you can watch some of them on Paramount plus that is a new thing that was announced. They have a, great up thing. a, a select few of the world cup qualifying games. And I think that's pretty cool. Uh, any other thoughts on the European slate? No, I'm just looking forward to how it shakes out. Well, we have a bigger um, we have a bigger World Cup pool right, of teams that'll mm-hmm. qualify it's true. than we did before. So there are going to be a lot of teams that, you know, they'll do just well enough. There'll probably be some new teams that are worth watching now that we'll see in Australia and New Zealand in a couple of years. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Brazil did beat Argentina. That was from a different region of the world. Trying to think if there were, I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with any other results. So, you know, just kind of nothing, nothing major, nothing major, nothing earth shattering this week. Um, and then we did have one more game. We're just going to put all the games into one section here. And this game was actually an international friendly, just not between nations. It was an international friendly between the Houston Dash and Tigres Femenil uh, of Liga MX Femenil. And this one, interesting, maybe in the result swing, uh, the dash did go down to Monterey in 2019 to play Tigres, and that did not go quite so well for the Houston dash, but that was a very, I mean, like they said before this game, very different uh, team, very different expectations. This one was another blowout, which I don't think I expected. No, me either. Uh, there were dash goals from Brie Vasali. Makame Gamera-Stevens, she had a brace. She scored two. Nichelle Prince scored one. Veronica Nolasco also scored one. And Tigres did get one back in the 81st minute, courtesy of Caddy Martinez, who is a great player. Um, okay, first question. The Dash have been very ambitious in their uh, 
outside of regular season scheduling this year. They participated in the ICC. They participated in this match. They are clearly going with the idea that it's better to have the team game ready than super rested. And I think also you would have to imagine that there's an idea that so a big game like this one would be an emotional lift as they go into the grind of the last couple games of the regular season. Um, is that a risk though? And also as nice as this result is, does it help them with this stretch of NWSL games? You know, I, I always wonder that when you clog the schedule like that, I mean, I think if you're watching soccer and, any corner of this globe, regardless of which teams you're watching, which players you're watching, you are seeing across the board that people are just, they're probably playing too much. A lot of people fatigue is all over the place. I'm not necessarily saying that's the dashes problem, but it's made me very, it's made me almost uh, resistant to fixture congestion. Um, But I think at least in the case of this match against T grace, they got a lot of players. They got or they got a few players minutes that maybe don't always get uh, a lot of minutes in regular season play. So to have those players at least fit enough to contribute in any way, that will be a positive. Yeah, I think that's true. And I and I do think again this kind of a result, which was very lopsided and sort of surprisingly so, um, if the dash ever need maybe at this point in the season, a season where right now they're sitting outside of the playoff race, very close, but they're sitting outside of the playoff race and have struggled to close some games out. Maybe if there's an issue of belief in any way, having a marker of improvement from where they were in 2019 to now. Now, obviously, Tigres were also missing some of their Mexican internationals. We are in an international break. Um, The Dash were missing their U.S. internationals, but not their Canadian internationals. Canada did not schedule any games during this period, um, which is wild. Uh, But um, (laughs) uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I would say that I would have, I would say as from a neutral perspective, I wish the game had been a little bit closer. Um, but for them as an insular program have to ha- have to take a lot of positives. And actually maybe this is a good point to bring this up too. And we'll maybe talk about this more as, as the regular season progresses, but the one person playing in this game. And I thought to myself, I don't think I've talked about this on the podcast yet is Megan oyster. And they were talking on the comms and I, I'm not going to spend too much time harping on the comms, but you know, they were talking about how this was an opportunity for depth players to prove their worth in a way, right. To prove that they should get more minutes or whatever. And I'm thinking, well, Megan oyster just got bumped because they, <laughs> they got too many, they have too many center backs and they haven't changed their formation. I don't think she's out there to, prove herself i think she's out there because she's a starting quality center back um who should maybe be playing that obviously sort of highlights highlights some of the roster imbalance for the dash right now yeah no definitely yeah i don't think that's quite the way to describe why megan oyster was playing against tigris she's just i mean she's somebody who's good enough to get minutes hasn't it's a, you you outlined it very well but it's not it's not your regular second string, third string player trying to make a point sort of situation at all. So it it was the case for a couple of players, definitely not her. Right. Well, and I mean, I think that despite the fact that like Brie Vasali played very well, um, obviously Gamera Stevens played very well. I, I think that the dash have their starting 11 pretty set. 
I don't think there's a lot that could be done by, by their depth players to change that, but it maybe provides some new looks, gives them some looks on, on what, what subs they can bring in to change games, right. especially because again, institutionally they've struggled to close games out um, for Tigris thrilled with this scheduling because they should be obviously very proud of what they've accomplished in, in Liga Emeki's Feminil and they should be aggressive and wanting to get experience against top teams around the world. Um, a little bit of a wake-up call, though, right? Yeah. Now, I look, I think even outside of the result, I just love the idea that this match happened. I think while we keep talking about the conversation of, you know, NWSL versus European leagues or uh, NWSL teams versus European teams, I think there's a little bit of a demand for the empirical data about how just teams across the board uh, rank against each other. You know, Liga Mekis Feminil is a league that it's getting a certain amount of attention that I think creates a, just a curiosity for me, at least. I would love to see them perform at this level. And look, right now, I think Tigers could probably have played a little bit better. I think they even at the beginning of the match and at the end of this match showed signs that they could have kept the match closer. I think the momentum swing after the Dash's first goal was, it was extra, not so in a way where it was completely unbelievable, but I don't think every version of the match plays out that way. Agreed. Agreed. I think it made me, it made me have a big desire for like a home and away. Because yeah. you could see at the end of the game, they, you know, Tiga, it, it was kind of an emotion, maybe an emotional roller coaster a little bit for them because yeah. they didn't really have, um, they didn't really respond to going down. And in fact, they let in quite a few goals in a quick period of time. But at the end, once kind of the damage had been done and they're just like, okay, we're in it and we're going to go compete. They started to move the ball really well. They were starting to get some spaces in behind. We know what I think that actually in Liga Mekis, like they're finishing not only rivals the NWSL, but they have finishers that actually are probably maybe better than some of the strikers <laughs> in the NWSL, that element of their game. And it was just a matter of getting those shots off and, and staying composed and just getting that, getting that done. And so you started to see that. And then the match ended and I was yeah. like, that's the game I would have liked to see, you know? Yes. So the only answer is just to keep scheduling these, right? Let's right. Keep doing it. <laughs> At the end of the day, we we only have a really small sample size right now. Yeah. We have this match from this week, and we have a match from two years ago, right. which was a little bit more, well, more than a little bit. It was more interesting than this one. Yeah, it was and, certainly more competitive, right? For sure. But, I mean, just growing the sample size, we'll see if this is a venture or a series that's more exciting than it has been at times. Yeah. That's the only way to find out. Definitely. And I also just think, again, like this is something that's talked about a lot in the men's game here, which is that there are fans of, of these of these Mexican teams who do not get to see those teams. It's like the U.S. They, they do not get to see these teams play all the time. And I think it's wonderful to have those teams come into the States and get to play in front of those fans, because as we know, when the, the Mexican, whether it's club teams or, or the international team comes to play in the U.S., their fans come out to, to support. And I think that that's wonderful. And I think that that should be true on the women's side as much as it is on the men's side. So I think that Absolutely. that was pretty cool. Pretty cool to see. So those were most of the games, obviously not exhausted, but this uh, was, was most of what we focused on. Nothing conclusive, just kind of scheduling. It just seemed like a lot of scheduling. People played soccer games. They shook hands and then they went home. 
<laughs> a um, lot of blowouts this week. Yeah, nothing for, you know, nothing uh, incredibly close. Uh, but, you know, that's kind of the time of year that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. We'll see some things change. I think the things start to get real. I mean, for the U.S., but also for everybody, things start to get real at the turn of the year. January, February, uh, England just announced that they are hosting a, a friendly competition um, alongside on uh, opposite of she believes. So you're we're going to see we're going to see some some pretty some more intense competition, I think, as the year closes out. Uh, so this has been part one of the Equalizer podcast. We will be back in part two with your questions. Welcome back to part two of this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. As always, I am your host, Claire Watkins, joined by Party Katri. And now we're going to answer some questions. We got some questions from Twitter, from Instagram, from the website, all of that sort of good stuff. Thank you so much, everybody who submitted and helping us <laughs> content plan for this week. There's some good stuff in here. When will um, we get questions from TikTok? I'm kidding. I know. Or just <laughs> yell, yelling down the street. Who knows? Um, Smoke signals. Yes, right. Exactly. Or uh, send them by carrier pigeon. That's right. Similarly, always uh, rate and review this podcast. Give us a five-star rating on uh, Apple Podcasts. Give us a nice review. Always good to help us by giving us... Oh, gosh. This is not worded well. Anyway, I say this all the time, and yet I still struggle to get it out. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a review. It helps people find us. Um, but now let's move on to some questions. So we're going to start put your questions in the reviews, by the way, we probably won't be checking there. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, Carrier pigeon. Who knows? Possibly the reviews less likely. Who can say? All right. So first things first, we're going to go to Twitter first. We're going to do some Twitter questions. Uh, we'll start with a fun one, actually, which is Emily asked, what do you think San Diego's name will be or their colors or what should they be? What would you like San Diego's name and color scheme to be party? Okay. So I did give this question some serious thought. And what I realized very quickly is that I'm not the branding type. But um, what uh, what I'll say is that when San Diego announced themselves, I really loved the imagery they came out with. I'm not easily floored by pictures of beaches. But uh, I don't know. They did a really good job with that. So I think maybe something beach inspired would be great to see. Um, nothing basic like San Diego waves or something. They the, 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 they have professionals we're working on who will probably be a little bit more creative. So, but I I would go in that direction. Um, maybe you get a cool blue. There are a lot of blues out here though. So I don't know. Um, yeah, I I would say. I don't think they will do this because I think that branding wise, especially in the United States, lots of teams, men's men's and women's are skewing away from the idea of city nouns. They're they're more they'd rather do like a something FC or uh, race of something like racing Louisville. They're they're trying to come up with sort of European football sounding names as opposed to a more Americanized version, which is you have the name of the city and then you have the thing that they are. And I like that. It makes it easier to write about. It gives you more descriptors. It gives you more options. It gives you a mascot. I like that kind of stuff. So my only request for the name would be, I hope that if they don't go the way of having a team name, that is a noun of some kind. I hope they have a nickname ready to go because that would be really helpful for me. Yeah, that's I would like that color wise. Yeah, I mean, this is not super imaginative, but the two thoughts that I had were, again, you're right. There are a lot of blues. I would 
don't know exactly how limited they are by Nike's color scheme in terms of Jersey color, but I do think there is more that could be done with blue. And if anybody has a right to blue, I would think it would be San Diego. I would even think like, I love the colors of like the LA Rams where you've got kind of that baby blue and a nice yellow. I think that that would be nice. Yeah. That's a bit, I mean, that also reminds me of UCLA a little bit, which I mean, I wonder if like Angel City would be slightly offended by that, but they already have their name doing their own thing, right? Yeah. So rose, rose gold and all that sort of thing, Um, which I don't think pops that well in that format. I would just like to put on the record, but I I like good luck to them. Oh, yeah. And I also liked that L.A. was sort of flirting with metallics. Like if you did like a light blue and a silver or something like that, I think you can just get more interesting than blue and white or blue and red. I would say no red, no red accents for for San Diego. So I think I think if they still I don't I mean, I think Sacramento Republic is uh, red. So if they're still interested in keeping that connection, which I don't know if they are, right, they might be red, red, but I would, I, I would definitely opt against red. Yeah. So that's what I would say. I like, I like like a baby blue and, and a yellow or a, uh, or, or, or a silver. I think that that would look really nice. So I think that idea for a metallic is very interesting, but I do not know how the execution will pan out there. I don't yeah. think there's a lot of room for metallic in soccer kits i don't think there is but maybe i can be proved wrong i think angel city will try to prove me wrong the thorns did try if you remember the thorns third kit or their like away kit in 2018 that the tire track one oh, <laughs> they, they tried to do that and okay. that didn't look so good so yeah we'll see. no it didn't we'll see yeah. maybe maybe that's improved uh over time but but who can say so i don't know if anybody has any better ideas let us know uh, let San Diego know most importantly. No, I do think, like you said, I do think they should lean into it's beachy. It is like, that's great. And that is an aesthetic that the NWSL doesn't have. So yeah. I think that pulling from that isn't boring. I think that it just seems like organic to the area. And I like, that. right. And like angel city isn't doing it. So right. Exactly. They're going for something very different. Um, cool. So actually we have a couple questions about newer teams. Uh, Becky asks current standing aside, how curious how you think racing has done racing Louisville in terms of building for future success. Mm -hmm. Um, That's an interesting question because I I've been down there. I've seen what, what racing Louisville kind of has going on and definitely can say in terms of environment in just like terms of facilities and feeling very new. They have a new stadium, new fan base. I think a lot of that is very positive. And I think that Louisville does legitimately like have some nice things for their players that other teams do not have. I think that they made such a big mistake with their first coaching hire. Yes. That it's going to take time for that element to stop getting in the way of becoming a desirable location for other players. I don't think anybody who plays for Wash, I don't, I cannot speak to that. I think that there are many players on Louisville's roster that like it there, would like to stay, feel very positive about the organization. I think the coaching hire was a big mistake, and I think that it has soured the organization on certain parts of of the player pool who might have otherwise been open to playing there. For sure. I think roster building 
the next coaching hire is so key here because you, like you said, it's just going to take a lot of time to recover from that, from hiring Christy Holly for, I mean, you can talk about it in just roster building alone. I don't think this roster is, I don't think it was built well. And I think it was built mostly to just sustain it was Whatever. also just so clearly built by him. You talk yeah. about how it's difficult to make changes when you inherit a roster. This club roster is filled with players that Holly knew previously to this job, player rights of players that he knew previously to this job, a very specific type of wanting how he wants to play. And a lot of those pieces are very exciting, right? Ebony Salmon is fabulous. Emily Fox is fabulous. Um, Michelle Betos has been a very important leader for them. Uh, Chana Matthews, I think, is really great. Like, they have a number of pieces. We'll see what happens with Nadia Nadim. But it's so it's a mixed bag. I think some of it actually really has been very positive. And, in fact, they've done, for an expansion team, really not that poorly. They're not in the playoff conversation, but they were never going to be, and that has to be okay. But the coaching thing is it gives you pause and – when you have these next couple really important years of player development, specifically bringing new players in the club has to decide, first of all, if they're sticking with the roster vision of Holly, because it's so personalized to him as a coach. And if not, they're starting over a little bit. Yeah. So, I don't know. And, I, and it really does make you ask questions of the people who are responsible for these hires, because I mean, even Holly coming into this job, he was somebody who did not have a lot of buzz on him for a while. I mean, I remember when I found out that he was getting the job, I was like, I hadn't heard that name in a while. And, you know, I, I don't think he, I mean, when he left the NWSL after coaching Sky Blue, there were some questions about that guy. So I had, and, you know, he stayed in this job for a long enough period of time to make you wonder how much anybody else knew. Right. Because he obviously, he was fired for cause, which Louisville said in a <laughs> statement to the world. They don't, people don't always write that. It, right. it, the next coaching hire will be crucial, but I think as many players as possible would like to avoid a situation like that because it seems like, there are enough teams, at least in this league alone, where you might not run into those issues. Yeah, I don't know. And I think also you will always find that small market teams, I understand the value of small market teams. I think they're very important. But still, you know, you talk about your perception issues, right? Your perception issues of a small market team, perception issues of the fallout from the Christy Holly hiring and firing, um, whatever perception issues you get from hoarding rights, there are reputational issues to that. Like not saying that they were wrong to do it, but players feel a type of way about organizations that do that. And so I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but no, I think a stink develops. Yeah. So the question yeah. is, are they fine enough that they will be competitive next year? That I don't know the answer to. Right. And I think that's all down to the coaching hire. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. But yeah, I, I have, I have both, both good and, and, and less good feelings about, right. about racing right now. It's not all negative. No, not at all. Not at all. No, they've actually played well at times this season. Like you said, they have some great players that will be that will be a really good foundation for any coach really to build off of. Yeah. Absolutely. I know I was pretty negative. So let me just let me just come in and say that it's not all sure. that. Well, they also have two first round draft picks. They they have 
you know, some of the more traditional ways to, to play or build. And I think that they're going to be again next year, probably pretty young and, and new, and you're going to, you are going to need a coach with a clear vision with that, but there's no reason not to think that they can't have a very talented squad, more talented even than, than this year, I think with some of the buying that they've done and their options to go through the draft. So, and I guess we'll see what happens with Tobin Heath's rights. If they right. can flip that nicely, we'll see that gets less and less likely with every day, but we'll see. <laughs> she went to Arsenal. She said, no. Um, so moving on, moving on, uh, to again, more positive stuff for teams at the bottom of the table. Uh, Jano asked with Kansas city's announcement of their own soccer training facility, not actually a stadium. They, they announced that they are, they, I think actually have already broken ground on a $15 million, uh, Casey NWSL specific training facility. It looks awesome. Uh, kudos to the longs who are the owners of that team for basically just going all in with personal wealth to pay for that. And, um, stadium's a little bit of a different thing that does require, some different planning with the city. We'll see what occurs in that department. Obviously trying to get them out of the baseball field is important, but yes, brand new state of the art facilities, wonderful investment in the team. Uh, The question was actually about Chicago though. Just curious as to where Chicago is on their timeline of ultimately having their own or sharing facilities within Chicago limits, or if that plan has changed. Um, The answer to that, as I see it, um, is well, the, the real answer is I don't really know. No big updates on that. I will say it's probably pretty dependent on the fire. Uh, there is no way, absolutely no way that there is going to be any soccer specific facility of the size for a top tier professional team that you will get to <laughs> between the fire and the red stars. That's just not going to happen in the city of Chicago. So if they were to move into city limits, um, that would be, I think, dependent on MLS. The fire have announced that they have plans to build a new training facility in Belmont Cragen. Um, and I think also that's like a, a youth youth training center. They, they have purchased some land in neighborhoods that have a little bit more space. They are always talking about wanting to build a soccer specific stadium somewhere in city limits to be completely honest even if you get quote unquote within city limits in some of those areas, it's not necessarily significantly easier to get to than Bridgeview. Um, So Chicago's tough. It's like New York. It's, it's a city that does not have a lot of space and where there is space, they're not necessarily willing to, to use funds on a soccer stadium, which I understand. Are you just going back? Were you saying they're building a training facility in the city limits? The fire? Yes. Let me me double check. I believe that that is true. Um, That, that to me as somebody from New York is a shocking development. um, (laughs) I mean, you can um, build the kind of training facilities anywhere, but I'm still just shocked by that. Yes. Yeah. 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 So they are, they are working on, they are working on um, building or, you know, getting the full approved rights to start breaking ground on a brand new training facility in the Belmont Cragen. Uh, neighborhood, which is the Northwest neighborhood of Chicago. Um, Not super centralized, but certainly in the city. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So that is moving. And so if the red stars were interested in trying to be part of that, I'm sure that, you know, they could pursue that. But the other thing about that though, is if the fire have a training facility in Chicago, that means that they're not training at SeatGeek 
which I don't know. It, it also maybe makes sense for the red stars at this point to go all in on. We are the only top tier professional team, both training and playing in Bridgeview, which we all know the limitations to that. That's not public transit friendly. Um, it's not really in the city. They're paying rent. They don't own it, all of that sort of stuff. But I don't know. We'll, we'll kind of see, but they have the similar issues. It's a little bit different than Kansas city. I think in that Chicago is a very big city and it's very, the, the landmarking and the real estate deals of the neighborhoods are deeply entrenched in hundreds of years of local zoning and politics and all of that sort of stuff. And I also also, think at least in the case for KC, their training facility is not going to be in Kansas city. Right. Right. Exactly. And a lot of teams, that's the case. That's the case. It's true. And I empathize, even as a big soccer person, I don't know if cities should spend money on these things. I'm not sure there ha there hasn't been a lot of data that has necessarily supported the fact that it is good for the community to have a stadium built somewhere. It doesn't necessarily bring new business. It can displace people. It's a resource hog. I, I don't know. We'll see. I'm in complete agreement there. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. Chicago's a weird one. I would say that the Red Stars, I think that SeatGeek is not flashy and it's not fancy and it's certainly not new, but that is not a terrible place to be while you see some of this other stuff play out. That's kind and of it's also it. actually a nice venue to watch a match which uh, for, I mean, um, like on broadcast. On, on broadcast, right. Yeah. 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 Like you don't really have the sightline issues that you have at some of the other NWSL venues. Right. Exactly. Um, I think it's always a relevant question to see how Chicago is keeping up with everybody else for sure. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think that we'll see, we'll see what happens with the fire, but it will be dependent on that. There's no way Chicago, Chicago is not a team that can throw down $15 million to build a, a training facility of their own. And I'm not sure that it's worth it to do that, to be completely honest. So, um, final question from Twitter from Jeffrey, this is a U.S. question. And uh, this is another one that you can look at from a number of different angles. If the U.S. Women's National Team wants to advance the equal pay debate, why not strike during friendlies? Jeffrey, there's a very easy answer to that. (laughs) In their CBA, they are not allowed to. The CBA is up in a couple of months, but as it stands, they can't do it. Well, even more importantly, in the CBA, they said that they wouldn't. You know, it, you the, the the thing about a strike is that there are there are non-contractual strikes. They're they're called wildcat strikes. They do happen. Um, we saw it happen during the the stoppage of play uh, across professional sports for for one night in 2020 in in protest of police brutality. But um, basically, for the U.S. and this is we could have a long conversation about this. They are balancing their livelihoods here with what they want to be able to advance in the equal pay fight. I think, and I I said this before we started and I'll say it here. They had the opportunity to strike in 2016 when they were performing without a, a full CBA for about a year. They chose not to do that. They chose to go to the Olympics. They made it very clear that, um, a stoppage of work was not on the table because I think they thought that that would not be productive to finally getting a deal done. And probably you go back to 2016 NWSL is certainly not as strong as it is now. It's not on its own two feet without us soccer. I empathize with 
a concern of the U.S. players back then when they were out of a CBA that this could all come crashing down. If they, I don't think I don't think they even had the public support that they do now. Right. It's not like they didn't have public support then, but like technically if somebody wanted to start a GoFundMe or something, or they wanted to get some support from another organization like the USMNT Players Association or whatever. I just don't think they had any of that in place. Right. And, and not to discount the popularity of the 2015 world cup team, but things were different pre 2019. They just, they just kind of were. And, uh, so I don't think these players had become like fully advocates for their own uh, right to play, right to exist, right to equal pay yet. They were still figuring out strategy as it went along. Yeah. And I, I think now think- it's clearer for them, but it wasn't at the time. And sure. that's understandable. Well, yeah. And, and I am someone who uh, I have I have friends who have been in unions that have participated in strikes before. And they're really hard and they're very scary and they're very adversarial with the person you are trying to eventually come to a contract with. And you are putting your job and a lot of other things on the line when you strike. It's not so simple as sitting out one game, right? When you're in a CBA, strikes are a very big deal. I also, this is a personal belief, believe that they are very effective. And I I would have supported the strike in 2016. And in fact, we saw the U.S. hockey team do that before the world championships and before the Olympics. And they were able to get a deal done because they did a work stoppage. So for me, you know, best time to strike might've been back in 2016. Maybe the second best time is now. I don't know how they feel about that, but I also think that when you have a team that so prides themselves on their professionalism and their ability to execute I don't know if they've really let themselves consider the idea that a strike is where they need to go with this. Um, so I don't know. So that that's, you know, short and long answer. Short answer is that they did sign a CBA back in 2016 that said that they wouldn't. Um, and then there's a lot of other considerations to that. It's a last, it's a, it is a last step in a long series of steps that I have not really seen that player pool be super willing to go that far or even consider it publicly. I'm sure they've considered it privately. So I don't know. They, so anyway, maybe that's something that they could do, but you look at positions of power here, right? So we're about to go into another world cup cycle. You have a lot of players who have not gotten established with this team who are trying to make that roster. You're going to have different elements of players leaving, retiring, maybe they just don't feel like they have the 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 currency within the program in order to do something like that but i don't know strikes work they do so i don't know uh thank you so much for your questions from twitter we will keep going now over to instagram fred asks <laughs> will the spirit implode before the 2022 season starts um is this not imploding already (laughs) that i do think is a funny question because obviously the last couple of weeks have been a disaster when things were already a disaster i think this happened this week that it was announced that the spirit had another forfeited game so in their last two games they have two forfeits they have two three nothing losses on the table that's a six game goal differential swing but the weird thing guys they could still make the playoffs. <laughs> they, it, 
And, and this is something that Ben Olson said in his interview with the athletic and take it with a grain of salt. But from his perspective, he said that there is a perception of implosion, but what he's found is for the most part within the team and within the front office or parts of the front office on the soccer side, there's maybe still some stability there. And so I don't know, but we've also seen teams do well on the field and then fold. Kansas city is maybe the most famous example of that. So will they implode before the 2022 season? I don't think so. Actually. I love your optimism. I know, but I think maybe what I do think is I think they will be stuck in sort of purgatory for a very long time. And I think that that is, it's not a folding, but it's also not what you want. And yeah. we've seen teams become like, oh, that's the depressing team. And that is where the spirit is going. I think the one other thing you talk about implosion, um, players are obviously going to play out the rest of this season. It'll be really interesting to see what players say, hey, actually get me out of here after this season is over. Maybe that won't happen. Maybe things will be fine. But I think that that is another that's going to possibly be an issue as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess it also depends on what this listener means by imploding. Um, I think there's a chance that this team doesn't fold. I don't know if that's what that per- this person meant by imploding, but uh, yeah, I don't share your optimism. I feel like it can get worse as long as the two owners are feuding. I think the players, if I mean, look, if the players have the belief that they're good enough to compete and win matches on the pitch, I think for starters, that's totally fair. It's a really well put together squad uh, with great players and they can sort of publicly make the team look a little better or make the club look a little better than it is. But I think as long as these two owners are feuding, which they still are, and there isn't a resolution to that problem. It's not, maybe it can't get worse, but it's not going to get better. And yeah, I think purgatory is the right way to explain it. Yeah. And I think also that maybe the danger there then is when you feel like you're maybe kind of stuck with one particular major player being maybe the Steve Baldwin um, of it all, that you're put into this position by his desire to regain, to retain control of the team. But the issue with that, especially if that dysfunction causes good people to leave, to find other work, um, then the moment he decides he's done, you have nowhere to go. So I think that that is, if, if there was a perception of folding or completely imploding, that is the danger is when you have a person who successfully only surrounds themselves with their people and makes life hard for the other good people who want to work in the organization, then they have gotten the control that they desire. And one of the things they can do with that control is fold the team. So that is, that is maybe my biggest, my biggest concern, but um, yeah. Yeah. Hard to say, really hard to say what I found with all of this stuff is that trends can change. Things can turn around. I, I don't know. Well, just, right. I mean, I, I'm you hopeful. Know- I am. I am hopeful that even if, the, again, even if things do not get resolved, I would hope that the competency is high enough that it does not make the team cease to exist. 
Yeah. I think these are all fixable problems. I don't necessarily say that they're easy to fix, but these are fixable problems. Yeah, for sure. And one can only hope that they get fixed. Right. Also, I think you never know, but you would hope that if the team was in in danger of fully imploding, that the league would step in and do something, that the other owners would would find a solution for that. Um, Okay, moving on. Ella asks, what are the other ways the expansion teams can build their rosters other than, I assume, the expansion draft? How does money work here? Um, This is a good place to say that uh, we got word this morning that the Kansas City immunity from the expansion draft is apparently a tradable asset because there's nothing in the NWSL that is not. Um, So that just fun piece of news. We'll see if any teams try to jump on that, make a deal with this great, great chaos league to get their own immunity. Um, Answering the question, the expansion teams have the allocation money that everybody else has. I think that cap was at $400,000 this year. So they have that money to spend. I don't know what incentives they also got as expansion teams, whether they got an extra, they might've gotten actually a little extra money being an expansion team. Um, They have a college draft pick, which as we saw, Angel City has already traded that away to Louisville, but San Diego will have that as well. Um, So you maybe start doing immunity deals with teams. They say, we're going to send you this person so you don't participate in the draft. That gives you a little bit more control over the way that process goes down. There are also... Um, and I don't know if this is how these teams will target, but there's a wealth of talent of American players who do not play in this league currently. Oh yeah. And those transfers are just like the normal global transfer market. You go to a team with a price and say, Hey, we want to acquire this player. They would like to play for us. And, uh, here's how we're going to get that done. And I know that obviously the NWSL has limitations to what international players you can sign, but there are a lot of Americans out there that could be contributors to an NWSL team that for whatever reason are not currently playing in the States. Um, and maybe, and you would obviously have to go through the discovery system, but if you are really dedicated to finding players that maybe other teams don't know about, you can put together a pretty decent squad with that as well. Yeah. Look, there are a lot of ways to build a roster. I'm actually really, really curious to see what San Diego and uh, Angel City do. There are a lot of directions they could go in. And they're both they're both very clearly very ambitious um, clubs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm going to be honest. I don't know how any team honestly builds builds a, a competitive roster with the current salary rules and stuff like that, the current salary cap. But I guess you find players that are willing to take a certain amount of money to play for a cool new club and you go from there. So I think that's how you build that out. As we've said before, the expansion draft doesn't seem like it's going to be as advantageous to the expansion teams this year. So they might have to try a little bit harder. Um, you sign undrafted players out of college, you sign, um, local local people that maybe other teams haven't heard about. The yeah, scouting structure in the NWSL is still kind of limited. There are players out there that other people don't necessarily have on lock. Yeah, I think the the bet, I think you have to sign a few lottery tickets and see yeah. how those go. Right, exactly. Um, right, some some boomer busts, some high upsides, maybe high risk that yeah. other teams that are established don't need to take risks on, but you can. And then basically you field the team, you have a rough first year because that's just how it goes. And then you, now that you are in that system, you can go from there and start strengthening things. And um, then you have assets to trade too. Right. Exactly. If you ever need to do that. That's right. And money to trade if you need to do that as well. Okay. So speaking of signings, Karen asks, 
name. I'm not going to do three to five because that's a lot, but name a couple <laughs> international players you would love to see play in the NWSL. Okay. Uh, first person I thought of when I heard this, but I mean, when I read the question was Vivian Miedema. Sure. I really, really like watching her play. Does this person just say overseas or Europe? I think just international. Anybody. Okay. Okay, great. Barbara Banda. I want to see her play more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then, I mean, there are a lot of players that, that are just great. And now I'm blanking on all of them, which is just remarkable. So, <laughs> yeah. So maybe one, one, one that I'll make is, uh, and this is a player that I want to play in the NWSL, not just because I think that she's a great player, but also I would love to see, <laughs> I'd love to see a player like Jesse Fleming come back to the Ooh, NBS, come back yeah. to the States just because she's not playing for Chelsea. <laughs> That's true. So I would like for her to come play for a team where she's going to get playing time. And also mm-hmm. I think an NWSL team would be a great fit for that, you know? Yeah. And then we can all enjoy it. Yeah. Because someone like Minima, obviously, right. She's one of the best players in the world. Um, but she clearly is executing over, over in Europe and stuff like that. So that would be a great signing if she ever at one point wanted to spend a couple of years doing the U S thing. But I'm like trying to think of players that it's really realistic. Not, yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, but yeah, Barbara Banda is a good shout. Would love to see her. Well, again, would just love to see her playing in a league where it was easier to find streams of her playing. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I got no problem with her playing in China. I just can't see her. That's it. Yeah. I mean, I very much miss Franny Ordega in NWSL. Estefania Benini would love to see her back in NWSL. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one, maybe the big flyer that I would just, I think would be very, very fun is I think it would be really fun to see uh, Sandy Baltimore play oh that's a great that's a great just like play. cooking cooking people on the outside in the nwsl every every week i think i would love to see that, that would that. honestly just be that would be thrilling mm-hmm. yeah um, a lot of great picks a lot of yeah there's just a lot of good players out there more more and more every year but yeah so my my real answer is maybe jesse fleming just because i'm like what is she doing at chelsea right now and then we can go from there bunny shaw you know the usual <gasps> suspects. bunny shaw yep yep that was one of the names i that escaped my mind for sure um, Annie asks, which non-allocated NWSL player do you think is the most valuable to take in the expansion draft? That's a really good question. Yeah. Um, the one thing about that though, that is funny is that anybody we name is certainly not going to be taken. In the yeah, I know because they'll be protected. Um, I think, mm. I think you look at a wealth of those players on, on the thorns, mm-hmm. um, Emily Menges, uh, Megan Klingenberg, honestly. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see who else. Just great overall value, Megan Simone Klingenberg. Simone Charlie. They they have a number of, of really talented, really talented. Rocky now. Rodriguez, I think you could do great things with. For sure. Bella Bixby. I mean, they have a lot of players. That, that oh, my gosh. Especially them goalkeeper-wise. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, they have Abby Smith as a backup now. Mm-hmm. I think for years has been good enough to be an NWSL starting level keeper and just hasn't gotten there yet. Right. Um, honestly, I would also put Morgan Gatra on this list. She's no mm-hmm. longer uh, U.S. allocated. I think that she is. And that's like a gift to Chicago that she's no longer U.S. allocated because they can protect her. I think she's been playing very, very well. Um Sydney LaRue, I Ooh, think, yeah. has raised her that, value she's definitely, a lot. She's definitely getting protected. But if she isn't, 
Yeah, yeah. Just that's an easy protect, right? Yeah, you take that pick with you. You grab that pick with everything you got if she's not protected. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. Abby Urseg is another one. She's yeah. you know not allocated just by way of, of not being American, not being even eligible to be allocated. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, let's see. Hmm. If Fiona Mamu, I think, has had a great season, she'll be protected regardless. But yeah, she's absolutely. been great. Um, hmm. Which is fascinating just to think about how her stock has risen in recent years. Um, yeah. And then, oh, Sofia Huerta, I think, is a good shout. She's been quite good for, for the rain this year. Mm-hmm. Um, Jess Fishlock. Actually, maybe my real answer is Jess Fishlock. Again, Ooh. another one where just by way of, of not being American, not, not allocated, but um, really, really really great this year um yeah that might that might be might be mostly it i think yeah yeah that's a that's a solid list of people who will most likely all be protected (laughs) yes so right that's like an easy protected list i don't think those players are going anywhere yeah but Um, i mean there'll probably be at least a couple of surprises on uh who on the list of players who are not protected well, yeah, once you get into the, the you can't protect everybody, you know, I, and you look at Portland, they're a team that is going to have to make some decisions. Like if they do get around being able to protect Lindsey Horan and Crystal Dunn because they are now allocated by the team themselves, that those are two spots that other players are not going to get. So you might end up having a player like one of their forwards, whether it's like Charlie or Morgan Weaver, um, end up being available just because you have to fill out the numbers somehow. Sophia Smith is a Federation player now, she is, right? Yeah, she's yes. Out. Okay, that's what I thought. Um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's why Mal Pugh wasn't on my list either because she's actually still allocated as well. So um, we'll see. Yeah. Those are my answers. Uh, okay, so uh, no name here. Why did North Carolina and Kansas City release names of COVID protocol players on injury report, but not DC? Um, I assume it's because the game wasn't played. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no need to re- issue an injury report if there's no game. Right. Uh, the, the function of an injury report is to let media, fans, and actually, honestly, betting sites know how to place odds based on who is available. That's the function of an injury report. Um, if there is no game, then you don't have players out. Obviously, if that OL rain game had been played, there would have obviously been a list of players who are not available. We did not get that because there was no game. The one thing I will say about that though, is we saw the fine for the spirit, that $25,000 fine for violating the medical protocols in the league. We did not see individual fines placed down on individual players, which we do have precedent for fines from the league being identified um, player wise. If they do get fined for criticizing referees or whatever, um, so I don't know if the league just decided not to do that. I don't know if there was any sort of internal fining from the spirit themselves, uh, or if they just said, we're just going to do a blanket fine for the spirit organization, just because this was a mess, not only uh, individually, but organizationally. And they're going to leave it at that. So that's my pretty short answer to that one. I think it's just because there was no game. If there had been a game, you would have seen it on the injury report. Um, because so I guess you can probably tell by, um, you know, the people who ended up going to international duty, who, would have been included on the injury list if they were injured or had COVID or were a close sure. contact. I think you can find contextual things. I'm, I will say personally, I'm not really going looking for that. I think 
if, if we find out, we find out. And if we don't, we don't, um, that whole thing was a failure. I agree with the league. That was a failure organizationally, even bigger than a failure of individuals. And I think that some of the energy is a little bit misplaced to go after specific individuals in this one, other than just like, get, get all of, get your stuff together, Washington. Um, so a couple last questions here. Um, we're getting through them. Uh, Donald asks, I would really like to know what folks think of Kansas city being exempt from the expansion draft. Well, they have a tradable exemption asset from the expansion draft. I mean, they really, they are an existing team that just relocated. Um, yeah, but they saved the team. (laughs) (laughs) That is a thank you for saving the team. Yeah. And on such a short timeline too, it was basically like under the wire. Yeah. No, I, I, I actually, I, I slightly disagree with, with the statement posited here that they should be, they should be part of the expansion draft because they already existed before it makes, it honestly makes sense to me that the league said, thank you so much for not letting this roster completely fold and have us fold a team. Um, you do not have to go through an expansion draft because we know that we gave you zero amount of time to even build a roster yeah and that what a that's a really small price to pay if you're the league yeah and ironically with the idea that that is tradable i don't see why kansas city might not actually get into some of those deals because kansas city's roster is not that strong so yeah maybe they would do fine in an expansion draft and they could get more by trading some of that away so i don't know it's all in the yeah, mix do more chaos just just do it i'm yeah, ready exactly. just for the just for the takes yeah. Um, I mean, we do have a podcast to report. That's true. That's true. <laughs> um, so Rebecca asks, and this is kind of similar to some of the stuff we already said, and this is our last one. It said, if you could bring any player from a top European squad, this is good actually, because I didn't really shoot for the moon necessarily. Um, but if you could bring any player from a top European squad to the NWSL, who would you recruit? Yeah, I, I, I answered that question already. <laughs> um, if I could take a player from any top European squad to the NWSL, who would you recruit? Um, I would bring Sam Kerr back. Honestly, yes, that's the one. Uh, yeah. I mean, I I know that's boring because everybody's already seen her. But for my, if if I were running a team, I'd want an NWSL proven player, and and that is that is the player that I would and also I would bring maybe back. the greatest goal scorer playing right now. Yeah, one of them for sure. And just, uh, I miss, I miss the Australians in general. I miss Australians in the NWSL. So I would take that opportunity. It was such a great vibe, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's probably what I would do just in terms of fit, you know, not every player is going to do great in NWSL and not every player is going to do great in Europe. And so I would probably pick somebody that I knew could, uh, could kill it, could kill it over here. So that would be my choice. Pretty boring, but such is life sometimes. Okay. Thank you everybody for your questions. I'm sorry if this was a little bit rambling, doing something a little bit different this week. We will be back with a couple more international games next time. In addition to the return of NWSL, we are finally getting into the real home stretch here. We're going to find out who's going to the playoffs and who is not. Um, thank you so much for listening. I am your host, Claire Watkins. Thank you, Pardeep, for joining me. Shout out to our producer extraordinaire, Jacqueline Purdy. Shout out to Blue Wire Podcast, our distributor. And we will be back with you guys next week.